Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the podcast. My name is Philip Coleman. I'll be your host today. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Chapter 3 of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. I'm joined today on the podcast by one of our lay elders here at True North, Mike Odenweller. Mike, welcome. Hey, thanks, Philip. Hey, everybody. It's good to be with you today. I'm excited to take a jump into Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and this chapter in particular uh, just talking about families of origin and being adopted into Christ's family. Definitely a lot of reflection that happens in this chapter. Uh, if you're reading along with us, uh, for me, it was kind of a, a awakening, if you will, in terms of just starting to look back um, as you try to go forward, which, of course, is the title of the chapter, going back in order to go forward. And Mike, uh, for the sake of our listeners, I want to ask you, uh, have, are you reading through the book for the first time right now with Book Club? Have you read this book previously? Give us a little insight into your experience, please. Yeah, I think you had turned me on to this one back in the spring, and so I read through it, an initial read-through, probably late spring, early summer this year, and so now this is a reread for me, and I think I'm kind of just picking chapters as I go along, cherry-picking them to, uh, to keep up with book club and jump in on things when I can. Very good. Okay. So, listener, I'll remind you, as I do every week, that this discussion is not meant to replace reading the chapter. Uh, We're not going to do our best to summarize the chapter. We're going to mostly respond to sentences, quotes, statements, and ideas that were stimulating to us, as well as some of the discussion that came up in our in-person book club session this week. Uh, I'll start by just kind of introducing the general idea of this chapter. The previous two were a little bit preliminary. Chapter one is mostly a thesis on why a book like this is necessary. If you've read that chapter, you'll remember that some broad categories, different ways to sort of begin to evaluate your own emotional, spiritual health. Chapter two then, I think, encouraged us to get to know ourselves a little bit better. And as we talked about on last week's episode with Tyler Wolf, uh, we began to engage with learning ourselves, some of our patterns of behavior, the, the sort of things if you're married that your spouse tends to bring up all the time that you can never really seem to fix. Um, and so this week, I think, is the beginning of stepping outside of just your immediate self, just the sort of things that you think and your opinions and your bad habits, and beginning to source those things a little bit, understanding where they come from, what the root is. So in an attempt to somewhat orient us, because maybe if you're like me, it's been a week or two since you read this chapter. Um, I wrote out a thesis statement. It's three short sentences. This is, I think, what we're driving at in this chapter. The first idea is that God chose, he made a decision, a willing decision, to birth us into a particular genetic family on the earth. And that happened in a particular location on the planet that brings along its own culture and its own sort of Um, specific rules, both spoken and unspoken, but also at a particular moment in history. All of us who are alive listening to this podcast now together at the same time are experiencing the same set of world events, the same cultural moments and movements, and those things shape us. Uh, The ones that preceded our generation shaped our parents and our grandparents, and of course, a large part of this chapter is tracing how those things trickle down to us. That choice that God made to put us into a particular family in a particular place at a particular moment in history brings with it opportunities, many things that are positive that come to us from our family of origin, but also baggage. And we have to accept that every family of origin offers both of those things. There is no growing up experience that only gives you opportunities and avoids baggage. And also, there is no family of origin experience that only gives you baggage and doesn't present any opportunities. Now, certainly we would say, Some families of origin are safer, healthier, take better care of children, tend to prioritize better values and ideals, but all families bring those two things. And then finally, in order to deal with the baggage, 
what Pete recommends is that we go back into our past instead of avoiding it, instead of trying to just separate that train car and move on, we go back into our past on purpose and try to navigate it so that we can move forward into the future. And that's really our personal goal is to break free from any kind of destructive, sinful patterns of our past that come to us from our family of origin in order to live the life of love that God intends for us. So Mike, right out of the gate in this chapter, um, Pete gives us another really gripping illustration in my opinion, the story of two people, Frank and Maria, who are married. Maria has a few gripes about her marriage. It seems like Frank doesn't really understand that he is culpable. Uh, He has a lot of kind of blame shifting to do. He becomes sort of fatalistic at one point where he just gives up. Instead of listening to what his wife says, he just thinks, well, I guess this is the end. Nothing can be done, even though he has total (laughs) agency to to make whatever changes he wants to. Um, For you, was there any part of Frank's immaturity? Was there any blind spot that came out in that story that you connected with personally? And if not, that's totally fine. I just want to kind of throw the ball back your way. No, I, I think that there was. I think the the phrase that he uses, thousands of sermons, that they had worshiped God and listened to thousands of sermons together really resonated with me in terms of we can walk this walk and live this life. And even with somebody as close to us as our spouse, we can be hand in hand with them and 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 be trying to live a church life, be in God's presence and do it thousands of times and upon thousands of times, but yet still be missing the point, still not aware of how to course correct, still not aware of how to connect with, you know, a partner or a child or your parents. So yeah, I think that that phrase, the the thousands of sermons was really what jumped out to me just to emphasize how long and how much, um, we can be a part of it, but not really seeing the true self. Yeah, and I appreciated that this opening illustration is about a relationship. It's not just about an individual. I think that a lot of times the sort of disciplines of church life do have an impact on who we are individually, but we don't know how to apply those things to our marriages. We go to a marriage retreat or we read a book and they tell us we should be praying together in the morning as a couple. Well, then we go, well, I'm not even praying by myself in the morning. So we, we decide to do it. We get up early, we make breakfast, we change our schedule, we grab the Bible, we sit on the couch, we pray, and it's fine, right? It doesn't feel like a bad thing. We get a little ego boost that we did the Christian thing together, but we don't really know how to deal with who we are or the baggage that we're carrying or what's even really wrong in the marriage dynamic. We end up just sort of praying through a prayer list together, which isn't bad, but isn't the tool that can offer transformation to our relationships. And so I like that he pushes us back into, um, you know, oftentimes I think in our relationships with each other is where we find out our blind spots. It's where we figure out where we're still spinning our wheels and kind of treading water a little bit. Yeah, it almost feels like you are not, when you read a book like this or when you are at a sermon series or whatever it is, that it's not about you or you don't know how to relate that, like yeah. you're saying, to your own personal life or your personal relationships, that it's for somebody else. Or maybe you can do it for a couple of days, but then you fall back into your bad habits. And those habits are directly what he's talking about here in the opening part of this chapter. These have been formed in you by your family of origin mm-hmm. and by culture around you and the decade that you were brought up in and your you know, uh, influential years and things like that. Yeah, it brings to mind for me, um, this will be my last thought, we can move into sort of the the next couple pages of the book, Um, but this is a similar concept to what has led me in my preaching, and our preaching as a church, to try to be a little bit more um, practical without being pragmatic. That's a hard thing to do. So much of what is kind of in vogue in preaching right now is what we do. It's what we're doing in the book of Mark, where we're trying to be expository, we're going verse by verse, and it's a lot of teaching, it's a lot of 
illumination and sort of helping people grasp and understand truths that maybe they didn't know or have never heard before. But there's not always a clear point. There's not always like, oh, what do I do with this? How would this change my life if I accepted it? And so for me, it's been, a, it's been an inspiration to begin to navigate things like spiritual practices as a church intermingled with good expository teaching because I think that it's easy for the rubber to never meet the road when it comes to uh, our spiritual lives. So if I can, I want to read a quote that uh, in the paperback version appears on page 75. It's actually, uh, I think, the sort of the lead in to um, some of the next big chunk of the book, which deals with a biblical example. But Pete says this, he says, unfortunately... It is not possible to erase the negative effects of our history. We can't erase them. This family history lives inside all of us. It especially lives in those of us who attempt to bury it. That's a really hard thing to grapple with. The price that we pay for flight running away from our history instead of dealing with it is very high. Only the truth sets us free. So I want to throw the ball back to you. This is about pages 76 through 79 in the book dealing with the family story arguably the most famous family in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we call the patriarchs. Um, Pete gives us a couple of different lists of examples of ways that you can see through those three generations of that family, some really bad habits, some really bad cultural norms. Um, Did any of those stick out to you? Was any of that particularly enlightening or helpful as you read through that stuff? Yeah, I I was, when you, when you've read this story so many times, it, you know, it kind of maybe becomes a little bit of white noise and you start to just be like, oh yeah, I remember that, that, you know, Abraham uh, did that to Sarah or that Isaac and Rebecca's relationship was like that or, or whatever it is, Jacob's, you know, life was, went this way. Uh, But then to see it kind of bulleted out like Pete does in the book here, um, saying Abraham lied twice about Sarah, Isaac and, and Rebecca's marriage was characterized by lies and having it just spelled out that way, um, I think really reinforced to me their humanity, that it wasn't, these aren't just biblical characters who, uh, you know, lived in a vacuum thousands of years ago. And, but instead it, it reminded me of <laughs> these were humans. They had families of origin. They had a culture that they grew up in. They were limited just like we're limited by, you know, various components of life. And in that, um, you see their humanness, you see their, the, the culture, the, the, you know, the habits that they've developed play out. And so when he enumerates those in that bullet format, it really jumped out at me. I think the one phrase that he uses that, uh, that I took note of was more is caught than taught. And, uh, and just thinking about this and talking about this over the past week or so in terms of, you know, thinking about the things that we, and, and especially as a father with my three boys, the things that I try to teach them versus the things that I see them acquiring and learning from watching Karen and I interact, um, that is, it's palpable. It's, it, you know, I have, my oldest is 11 now, and he definitely catches more from us than I try every night to follow up with him and say, Hey, did you have any questions about your day? Hey, you know, what can I help to explain to you? But it's absolutely true that what he is learning and what he is emulating in his life is more from who I am and what our, what our marriage relationship looks like than just, you know, the things that we say with our words. Yeah. I think of sort of a principle of family worship. We've talked about this before on the podcast and in other settings, when it comes time to sit down and do the Bible together as a family, whether that's once a week or it's in the evenings or the mornings or whatever. I think a lot of times as parents, we put a bunch of pressure on ourselves to nail it. 
And, and I think what we forget is when your child is 20, they probably won't remember any one of those family devotionals. What they'll remember is that you did it. That's what will be caught is that it was a priority. They won't know what impacted them and what didn't. They're not taking notes. They don't care. They're not going to get a grade at the end. So that's not really their world. But the fact that it's part of the culture of your family sticks. Now, that's a good example. These lists are bad examples. The one that sticks out to me is the lying, man. You think about, I've never connected the dots that way, that all 10 of Jacob's sons, when they try to kill Joseph, are willing to lie immediately. There's not even a debate about what they're going to do. One of them says, oh, we'll just lie. And they all go, yeah, that's how we handle our problems. And you think about, okay, who is their dad? He is a liar. At that point in the story, he's an old man, so we have a little more empathy for him. But he's the same old man that he's always been. I mean, it's the same guy inside. Isaac and Rebecca's marriage, they don't ever trust each other because the whole thing starts the wrong way. And then you go past that. Abraham lies in Egypt about Sarah being his sister. The Egyptian pharaoh ends up bringing a plague down on his people because God punishes him for taking Sarah away because Abraham lied. It's crazy about how things like that, even a decision like that, to lie in a desperate political situation, right? Abraham's trying to save his own life and save his wife's life. He thinks the lie is worth it. And it becomes ingrained in the DNA of his family to the point that three generations later, one of his great grandsons gets thrown into a pit and sold as a slave. And all of his brothers just go, ah, we'll just tell dad an animal killed him. It's It gives me chills to think about what decisions I am making in my home to compromise in small areas that could grow and foster a different kind of culture in my family than I would ever say I want to create. Um, when you think about your own family, Mike, does anything come to mind? Can you, can you go look back to grandparents or even great grandparents and go, unfortunately being an Ottenweller has meant we overwork or we don't have hard conversations or we have a little too much to drink at night or, you know, there's little things like that. I'm not asking you to indict everybody with your last name, but is there a pattern that kind of comes to the surface when you look at your own family tree? So I think that's where this chapter gets hard for folks, right? If you're going to do the work that Pete's asking you to do, then that's where this gets hard because you really, you know, I mean, I think in our culture, we're raised to uphold the family name, you know, whoa, I'm going to pass this on and carry it on with my, with my children and all this stuff and, and, and to not ever, you know, blaspheme or any of that stuff, you know, and like you're saying, we're not looking to, you know, dig up old, old family secrets or anything here or, you know, call anybody out per se. But, but yeah, so as I was starting to look through it, um, a couple things that I notice in our patterns, and we'll get into this more in a little bit is in regards to the work side of it, you know, so I was raised Catholic and the works and the sacraments and the things that you had to perform in order to, the actions that you had to do in order to um, be in God's grace and be loved. I think that that was one thing that came out. I think I also, uh, there is a history of alcoholism in our family. And so I try to think through that a little bit more and see if there was ramifications. And there has been some trickle down um, into my own siblings. And so just thinking about that a little bit and the conversations that we've had over the last five or 10 years, you know, as most of my siblings are now either their 30s or their 40s. And then anger issues. Um, that was one that I really didn't expect. But in fact, I just had a conversation with my brother a couple days ago. And without any prompting from me at all, certainly no discussion of emotionally healthy spirituality, we started talking about anger issues and how those have maybe gone through the generations of our family. So I think those three things, uh, you know, stood out to me and were things that I had to start to pray about and really work through. And that's, yeah, like I said, where this chapter got hard. 
I think anger is a theme in most families, whether we deal with it or we ignore it. We try to act like we're never angry in an attempt to be maybe more polite or acceptable in our you know cultural setting. I have some friends in high school who were very upper class. I mean, country club, I mean, it felt upper class for me. I grew up in East Texas. So maybe you're listening to this and you don't think it's upper class, but it, it was to me. They owned a boat. They had a lake house. They had a, a, a home in the mountains that was a vacation home for them. They lived in the right part of town, member of multiple country clubs. And I know in their home there was extreme strife and anger and nobody would talk about it. Nobody would deal with it. The solution was everybody went to their room. I mean, even the mom and dad would just retreat behind a closed door until they calmed down enough, which is not bad. That's not a bad practice to calm down, but it was to never come back and readdress it again, to just leave it hanging in the room, in the family, especially for the kids, because the kids weren't adults. They didn't have their own agency. There's an authority structure in the home. They have to try to please their parents. They want to be loved by their parents. It made it very complicated for them to know what to do. And so one of my friends who came from a lifestyle like that was very peaceful and passive through high school and then became a rage monster in his marriage because he didn't like what his parents did, so he went the opposite way. Mm-hmm. He, he was like, We're, if, if growing up, every time I got a splinter, you know, emotional splinter, we just let it heal over and ignored it until finally our body pushed the wood out and we moved on, I'm going to call out every little thing that ever happens because I never want to have that sense of secrecy. And it drove his wife crazy. I mean, she lost a bunch of weight. She got really sick. She was very worried. They couldn't get pregnant in some ways as a result of all of this. So the, the ripples were big. She could see it. He couldn't see it. And I'm going to get ahead of us a little bit here. But as the chapter goes on, we start to learn to identify where these patterns come from. And I just, I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of other people. I want to read this quote because I think this is true. And we actually got a little bit of pushback on this in book club. Uh, this is on page 77. Pete says, each of our family members, each of the people who raised us through childhood, has imprinted certain ways of behaving and thinking into us. And then further down the page, he says, most of those ways of behaving and thinking are unspoken. And that is really interesting. In book club, we had some discussion where a few members of of the club were saying that they felt like they had a really whole upbringing, they had a really healthy and normal childhood, they couldn't identify really any of these patterns. And they were starting to get, I think, frustrated because I think they felt like we were all just sort of commiserating and they couldn't relate. And it was a little bit like not Christian feeling to them that we would be so negative about people who sacrificed to raise us. And, you know, and what was interesting, I tried to push this in book club. And I hope if you're a listener and you share that perspective, I can, I can just encourage you, stir you up a little bit to think differently here. This chapter isn't trying to tell you that your childhood ruined you. What this chapter is trying to do is help you understand that when and where you and especially other people who are close to you can identify patterns of life that are not helpful, that are not Christ-like, they aren't random. That's the point we're trying to make. They didn't just randomly happen, and they're not just your thing to figure out and fix randomly. They are sourced in something, and if you can understand where they come from, you get a lot of tools that can help you choose whether you continue to pass those things on or not. I think one of the most acidic things that we pick up on from our families of origin is the idea that you have to achieve to be loved. This appears on page 79 in the paperback book. And I'll just tell you from my own experience, Mike, if I can get personal here. This was, I think, much of my upbringing outside of my home. Now, this is complicated for me because my dad works full-time in local church ministry and has my entire life. And so my mom and dad did not play into the dynamic that I had to achieve to be loved. But I was at the big church where my dad worked 
as often, probably hour for hour, as I was actually in my home. If you consider the time I was spending in school, the other four or five hours I had at night before I went to bed were happening mostly at the church. There were church events, there were clubs and groups I was a part of that happened at the church. The older I got, once I was in the youth ministry, I got even busier. Then I got a job at the church working as a janitor. So I was just there all the time. And there was definitely a culture that you had to achieve, maybe not to be loved, but to be valued. Because I didn't need love from the church the way that I did from my parents, but I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to achieve, I wanted to be successful. And in that environment, because my dad worked there, there was a little bit of trickle down from him where when it came to church-related stuff, there was a sense of needing to achieve to be acceptable or to be considered sort of part of his persona at church. And this happened in my first full-time job after college. I worked at a summer camp that was totally moralistic, even though we talked about the gospel all the time. Every structure, every reward system, all the pay scale, all of that stuff was connected to how good of a job you could do, how many results you could produce. Could you push through sickness? Could you push through sunburn? Could you push through snake bites? I mean, whatever stuff would happen to you, you were considered a hero if you couldn't be taken down. You know, you'd push through it and fight, and there was lots of language of pouring ourselves out and taking up our crosses and being a living sacrifice, all out of context, all to try to push us harder, not really to get us closer to Jesus. And then even when I was in seminary, The culture on the seminary campus was very much do, 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 achieve, 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 and it just drove me crazy. So what I want to try to do is is land the plane here. I'm going to throw the ball back to you, but I believe that it's very possible to mix cultural norms, whether that comes to us from our family of origin or another setting that's connected to our identity. For me, my church, my first job, my seminary experience. In each of those settings, as I was rolling through those experiences, I was picking up on my surface and then eventually taking into my heart the idea that I needed to be better or I wasn't valuable at all. I had to prove that I was better. And so I think it's possible to take any cultural norm from our family of origin and mix it with the the teachings of Jesus. And I think what that will do, here's what's happened in my life, is we lose our ability to tell the difference without somebody else helping us. We need somebody to point those things out. So on page 80 of the book, um, Pete lays out some examples from his own life that are kind of broad categories that I think affect um, lots and lots of different kinds of people, what he calls unspoken rules of the family. Will you talk a little bit about what those are and then maybe highlight a handful that you related to? Yeah, I want to I want to just pull on one piece that you were just talking about there in terms of achieving to be loved or to be valued and, you know, and this is where it's been interesting, just taking some time to do some hard work through this stuff, um, not just in the book sense, but in life. And my folks were just up here a few weeks ago, and so we talked about some of these things. But, you know, whether it was growing up Catholic or whether just growing up in the United States and Western culture and things like that. But I've even seen this play out in my professional life now where I work super hard to feel valued. You know, you put in more hours than you're supposed to. You check in emails at 10 o'clock at night. You're, you know, showing up uh, on Saturdays and Sundays and whatever. And so seeing how that plays out, um, it it has been fascinating. And then to go to the thing where you're saying that it's an intermingling of the culture norms, our family of origin with the teachings of Jesus, I think that that is almost inevitable for every person, right? Because you don't come out of the womb as a believer of Jesus. You might be, you know, you might be loved by God, but it's not 
it, it takes time to develop your brain, to become cognitively aware that, you know, this is a choice that you get to make to follow him, to have faith in him. And so through that evolution, you've already been influenced by your parents of origin, by your siblings, by your culture, by your upbringing, the house that you lived in, the neighborhood, like you're saying, you know, what East Texas for me, it was West Michigan. Yeah. Those things have already started to happen innately. You have no control really of that when you're in diapers. And so it's almost inevitable that you're going to start to intermingle those things. And I think it, I mean, it's almost too much to expect of a, of a, of a you know, a, a young grade school kid or even an adolescent to be able to pull those two things apart. You know, I think about being a 15 year old high school kid and like trying to be able to separate like, okay, so this is what I get from my family of origin, but now this is what Jesus is saying. Let's separate those two things and make sure that I can like start to distance myself from the things that I don't want to become, you know, a a weird uh, interpretation or a weird uh, manipulation of later in life so that when I'm 40, I don't feel like I have to work harder at work to feel value from the people around me. And so I, I almost feel like it's inevitable for each and every every one of us that walks this earth to not have some, I feel like it's like a chemist in a lab where they see the, you know, the mixing of the two samples coming together and they start to interact and stuff. I feel like that's what life is. Well, I'm glad you've accepted that because that's where some of the friction has come in. I think for certain folks reading this book is they don't agree. They would argue that it is possible to relatively quickly identify and let go of maybe the things you don't want to pick up from your parents or to be born into a home that is so Christ-centered that you don't pick up bad habits, that there aren't negative things in play. Now, as a pastor, I want to say to those who are listening, please, please accept the reality that you have received baggage from your parents. You don't have to hate your parents. You don't have to dis- even disagree with what they did. You can look at every instance of negativity and and understand that it was circumstantial. They did their best in the moment. Nobody could have made a better decision than they did. All of that can be true and you can still be damaged just from the process. I don't think we're trying to blame our parents. We're trying to understand how a fact of life has an effect on us. And I would argue that it would be well within, um, oh, I want to say this in the right way. I think it would fit within the plan that God's enemy has for humankind to continue to deny and ignore what is present. I'm not saying anybody's serving the devil by refusing to navigate their past, but I do think that being convinced that it's unnecessary or maybe not being convinced that there would be benefit at the end of this very hard process, it's going to keep you who you are. It's going to keep you how you are now today, and you're going to die in 30 or 40 years with all the same problems that you have right now. Looking at that list on page 80, I know for my own upbringing, um, gender roles was a really interesting thing because I have a very independent mom who married into a family where my dad, I think, had a different expectation for her than she had for herself. And so there was just always friction uh, in that area of, of our lives. It wasn't clear what a mom does and what a dad does. There was a lot of sharing, which was good, but oftentimes that sharing was like compensatory. It was compensating because maybe there was no clear delineation of how we worked together. We were almost working around each other in spite of each other to get all the household responsibilities covered. Um, how and when to express anger is a big one. One of my parents will still to this day give people the silent treatment, has a tendency to cut people out of their life sort of forever um, without a lot of warning or conversation or, or a way back from that. Um, the other parent will bottle things up and be very polite and in control in settings where there's an authority in the room, and then they will sort of seditiously and covertly dismantle the people around them, go after them, undercut them, 
um, not frame them. There's never blatant dishonesty, but there's totally a willingness to let people flounder and struggle and kind of deal with their own consequences in a way that ends up eliminating those people um, so that that one parent of mine can sort of succeed and move on. Um, lots of church norms, obviously for me, what, what sticks out to you off that list? Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, when I first saw this list, I actually took a screen capture of it and sent it to my siblings because I wanted just to get their raw gut reaction to, you know, if, if you look at that list on page 80, it's, it's a lot of stuff and it's heavy stuff. Um, for me, one of the ones that jumped out was the money side of it. Uh, I grew up in a family where we just didn't discuss money or budgets or, you know, yeah, who was making what and, uh, and where it was going and where we had to save and where we had to spend and these kind of things. And, uh, and then it became, you know, because of that, it became a taboo topic. And so kind of what we were talking about a little bit ago with your friend who had the anger issues I think then oftentimes what we do, and this is not exactly related to the role or to the, the, the 10 list, but we take that thing and we push it to the polar opposite because we're like, okay, we didn't talk about this thing or we didn't deal with this thing at all. So now as I grow up, I'm going to make sure that I'm the antithesis of that. I'm going to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and I'm either going to overshare or course correct on anger or whatever it may be on this list. But yeah, I, I sent it to my siblings just to get their reaction. And it was pretty funny to see the text come back through. They were like, oh, that's a lighthearted list. And uh, I'm sure that none of us have anything, you know, from any of those topics that we were raised with. Uh, no baggage left over from any of those. Um, but Sadly, it didn't develop into a full conversation because I don't think it's a conversation to be had over text message, but simply I was just trying to get their reaction. But I think, yeah, I think for me it was uh, a little bit of the money and then a little bit of the uh, the race and culture. Um, there was often times, you know, I mean, my folks were born in the 60s. And so there was sometimes, uh, and we live, like I said, in West Michigan, which is, you know, a little bit of the Bible Belt of Michigan and stuff. And so there was, there was some um, subtleties that were presented about other races and other cultures that I think as a kid, you just accepted as normal because your parents either said them or portrayed that. And you just thought it was kind of what it was. It was life as you expected it to be when you're six or nine years old. And then as you grow up, you start to say like, oh, wait a second here. But as you say that, you also have to recognize that that's been ingrained in your brain and in your heart for however many years it was until you developed your own thoughts and, you know, uh, opinions and things like that. I think of racism specifically, sexism probably functions the same way, but uh, racism I think is like being handed uh, just a couple of crayons and being told to draw a rainbow. When you have a limited tool set given to you, even if you don't know, you've never seen the other colors, you don't know what they are, you end up drawing something that doesn't meet the criteria. You walk into life and it's not that you want to be racist or that you've even processed the kind of hatred that undergirds racism in an adult's life. You just pick up on language and biases and unspoken rules and you just run with it. Um, my parents have worked very hard to disassociate with a lot of the racism that their parents' generation carried pretty openly. Uh, but like I have a, my paternal grandpa, uh, by, by remarriage, my step-grandfather who's now passed away, I heard him say some awful things about people of Asian descent, people who were from the Middle East. I mean, words and language that he would never, ever use because to him, the atrocities performed by those cultures on America meant that they were less than human for life. And 
He just was unwilling to re- reckon with that. There was no, he wasn't reading this book. He wasn't navigating internally what maybe was good and bad about that and, and what he would like to do differently. So um, I think, Mike, now to begin to move into some of the solution here, I want to just highlight one last risk that we run uh, that I hope can be an encouragement to the listeners to take this process seriously and to hopefully find a way to um, connect with these concepts and try to apply these principles in their own life, even if it's uncomfortable or new for them. Um, Pete lays this out somewhere, I think, in the range of page 8081, where he says, when our family of origin compartmentalizes spirituality from every other area of life, that's what we end up doing too. And more than us just picking up on that pattern, it actually becomes necessary for us to do that in order to exist and survive in our family of origin. Now, what's really interesting is we move out of our family of origin, and if people have lived the story that you and I lived, they either go to college or they become involved in the military, but they move into a new social setting that's very different from the one that they grew up in. And I think we start to tell ourselves, maybe trick ourselves into thinking that we're starting all these relationships and we're living this new independent life and it's sort of severed. It's disconnected from all the junk that our parents did that we were sick of when we turned 18 and left the home. But the tools that we have that we use to build those foundational relationships in that first step into adult life are the tools our parents gave us. So even if we think that we're getting way away from our family of origins influence, we end up finding and connecting with people who are maybe similar to our mom or dad. We end up dating, for you and I, women who maybe have some of the patterns that we see in our own mother for good or ill. And so if we want integrated spirituality, we can't just distance ourselves from our past. We have to deal with it. Do you have a thought? Yeah, and and, and uh, you know, don't make too much fun of me, but my mom's name and my wife's name are exactly the same. So I'm in professional counseling now to try to break apart what uh, might be messed up about isn't that. Isn't that, uh, <laughs> on Parks and Rec, isn't that Ron Swanson's deal with I think Tammy's? That's right. uh, yes, yeah, I think Tammy's. his mom is also named Tammy. There's that episode where they have that competition to win Ron back to the office and he drinks that bottle of moonshine or whatever. It's like shoe polish basically. Yeah. Tammy one, Tammy two, that's Tammy right. three. That's a yeah. really good running joke in that show. What I was going to say though, was he, Pete draws on this in terms of the Israelites in Egypt. And of course we spent a good chunk of, uh, of the past year discussing Exodus and stuff like that. But he says here, uh, although the Israelites did physically leave the land of Egypt, a great deal of Egyptian culture and thinking remained in them. And that's the same thing. I think you're talking about here is even though we leave the home and we start to form these new relationships, we physically have left home base, you know, whether it's the house or the city that you grew up in or whatever it is. But all of those things that you had until you were 16, 18, 20, 25, they are still there. The culture is still in you and and the influences of Egypt, quote unquote, Egypt are still a part of you. So anyways, I didn't want to take too much of that, but I want to give it back to you in terms of um, how what happens if we ignore that compartmentalization of the spirituality. Yeah, that was my reality until about a year and a half ago. Um, I, we end up doing a lot of damage to people when we think that the spiritual parts of our relationship to Jesus, praying, giving, serving can only happen in a church building, or we just have two versions of ourselves. We feel this pressure to be somebody different when we're in God's house. You hear that taught in a lot of conservative churches that it's a really bad idea where we try to keep our kids from cussing or running because this is God's house and you should, well, it's God's world that you live in. So maybe just be the same person everywhere that you live. We do damage, but we also stay damaged. And this can come to the surface in things like abusive patterns, secret keeping, sexual deviancy, a kind of a dishonest lifestyle, double standards. Essentially, when we 
compartmentalize our lives and we stay disconnected from spiritual Christianity where we're actually praying and living with God and going with him, it's a breeding ground for narcissism. Another book that I've talked about before that I'm considering recommending as the second book that we do for book club is called When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat. And he deals a little bit with what has to happen in the past of a person who is a narcissist in order for them to become a narcissist. What kind of damage, what holes do you have to have blown in you such that you carry that shrapnel into your adult life and you begin to believe that you have to live this pattern of falsehood in order to convince people to love you and know you. Um, Mike, if we can, let's begin to work towards the solution here a little bit. This starts to show up around page 82 uh, in the in the paperback book. Pete lays out for us, you know, the risk, obviously, of not dealing with the compartmentalization. Um, and then he moves us right into the life of Jesus and explains the help that Jesus offers us. Um, the most helpful part of that for me is the idea that for the follower of Jesus, life in the kingdom of God is what determines your future. Your past does not have to determine your future anymore. So will you talk about that, the hope that comes for you, some of the things maybe that you look back into your past and you go, and I hope that doesn't have to stay true about me. I hope I'm not just the next Ottenweller in line who has to do X, Y, and Z things that are wrong. How do you find hope in Jesus to change? Yeah, and 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 we were talking about this a little bit in life group last night in terms of, and, and this is really, you know, a heavy theme in the chapter two, but the family of origin, the culture that we grew up in is just that. And then Christ calls us to adoption in his family. And I just like, I really spent time over the past, I don't know, a month or two, certainly in the silence and solitude, mm -hmm. just really sinking in and letting the the thought of God adopting me as a son of his and for the listeners, sons and daughters out there, that it's it's not the end. It's not uh, you know, it's not all that you're ever gonna have is your family of origin and and your upbringing and stuff. But God calls us into this new beautiful family and he is our true example. Um and and yeah, it, it does take hard work to move away from compartmentalizing those things. But for me, I think one personal way I've applied this, Philip, is that I try to be as authentic with my boys as I can be. And what I mean by that is I let them see who I am. I let them, uh, I, I am as transparent as I can be, that they know that I, <laughs> I fall short every day, that I have sin in my heart. Um, and that that's, you know, that's why I need Jesus so much living that out each day for them to let them know that I'm not the perfect example that they should look towards, but that it's Christ and, and, and God, the father that they need to keep their eyes on as that perfect example. That's a really personal thing in our family that I really, you know, I know every day that I'm probably teaching them bad things subconsciously or consciously, but I hope that at the end of the day, as they lay down, they know that their one true father in heaven is the only perfect example that they can look to. Yeah, at, at our house, we uh, we have, a, I think, a similar understanding that we're going to give our daughter some bad baggage. We just will. Our daughter's also adopted out of foster care, so we are already seeing lots and lots of effects from that process, the separation, the, the different anxieties, and the even the personality traits that she has. I think the hope that we find is that if and when she does decide to follow Jesus, that there's not a single thing that's happened to her that has to stick. And our hope would be, Mike, that instead of her having to wait until she's 32 or 33 to figure that out and then begin to do the work, that we can try to kind of bake into her childhood this idea that if at any point she comes up against 
a part of herself, a pattern of life, uh, a mistake, a sin, a broken relationship that she wants to change, that that's available to her. She can't just snap her fingers and wave a wand and do it, but that she has the capacity to go to God, to go to him personally, and that she can trust, hopefully based on the example she's seen in Andy and I, that we have changed, uh, that she can assume that he will do that work. Um, a key thought for me that I want to just talk a little bit with you about here is the idea that we are to honor our parents, but as followers of Jesus, we obey God, which implies that we don't have to obey our parents as adults. Um, you and I, certainly in the last 12 months, have had visits from our parents uh, who've come into our world, flown a long way to visit us here in Alaska, which is itself is just kind of a higher stakes visit experience than what I was used to other places. How have you felt tension between obeying your adult parents, you now in your 40s and, and them much older than you, and finding ways to honor them while maybe respectfully and nicely letting them know that you are your own person? I honestly, I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head if this is from what I read. Uh, you know, it is, it is here later on in the chapter. Uh, I'm just going to read it. It has been said that the real measure of our sense of self is when, when we are with our parents for more than three days. At that point, we need to ask ourselves how old we feel. Have we gone back to our patterns of behaving more in line with our childhood, or have we broken free from the past to live in what God has for us now? Yeah, uh, having my folks visit just recently, in fact, and I, we were talking about this again at Life Group, is, you know, maybe we actually identified the number of days. We said like, yeah, for three or four days, I can kind of maintain who I am now. And then after that, it starts to break down. And that's, I mean, that was kind of my most recent experience. My folks stayed with us for about eight days. And uh, it was it was a challenge for sure to try to maintain who I am today. And that, I mean, I think that that's where it becomes um, so real and so vivid and so visceral that this is a real thing that even though we live 4,000 miles away from West Michigan, that it, it still is real. It still is a part of who I am that when my folks are in front of me and we're drinking coffee together, that it, it, I revert a little bit back to who I was. And so, yeah, I, I highlighted the same part that you did. We honor our parents, but we obey God. And I just think that, you know, I think back to the leaving and cleaving, which of course applies to your spouse, but it applies in other ways too, right? We need to, we need to leave our, our folks. We need to leave our, our family of origin in a way and cleave to our new family, to our, our spouse, but also to the adopted family in the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, without going into too much detail of that visit and, and whatnot, but it is a struggle, and I think we see those ways, and I really feel like it's only through the grace of God and through a lot of intentional prayer and a lot of intentional work and hopefully some natural maturation that we can start to... Um, and it was interesting because my folks were in town for a life group uh, that we had at our house. And it was just fascinating in that environment to see them act much more as peers and to, you know, in, interchange and exchange information and, and, and prayer requests and sharing with each other much more as peer level than it really was in any other part of the visit. And that was one of my favorite parts of the visit was that, you know, we were kind of honoring each other and, and obeying God. And there was no dishonoring, of course, but there also wasn't any kind of hierarchy or structure during that time of their visit. It was just us sharing in our life group as Christians and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to share authentic life. So 
Yeah, I think of uh, examples in my life where I now have the capacity to identify, because I couldn't as a kid. I didn't know how you treat a person. But I could. I can tell now my parents will be unkind to each other. Or there's a, there's a thing that one of them does to the other all the time, and the other has just accepted it. You know, oh, it's just your mother. Or oh, your dad's been that way for 35 years. And I think I feel a new sense of agency that I don't need to fix those problems, but I am allowed to identify them. I can say to my mom, it feels like when you do that to dad, that's pretty disrespectful. Do you know that you do that to dad? Yes, I do, because he's disrespectful to me in this way. Okay, well, now, all right, now you guys need to go get counseling. Or same thing, dad, I, when it comes time to pick a restaurant, you shut all the way down, because you know you're a control freak, and you don't want to be that, so you just become passive by choice in a way that's also really unhelpful. And I think there's a way there for me to interact with my parents and show a lot of kindness to them, but it's not my job to be beholden to those patterns. I don't have to go, uh, well, if we're going to pick a restaurant, uh, we're just going to go with what mom wants because it's going to be easier for everybody else or it's what she expects us to do. I have a voice. I can speak up. You know, when it comes to the grandparent role, that's an interesting dynamic because we see new patterns of behavior in our parents. We see our parents do stuff to our kids and we go, you would have never let me get away with that garbage. You never gave me candy or pie or ice cream, all that junk that you do now. You stay up all night and you crawl around on the floor on your hands and knees and bark like a dog because it's what my daughter wants you to do. Some of that's good, but we also have to be careful, right? There's still some standards I know in my own life with my parents where there's things that they, I think, naturally want to do with my daughter to parent her as the grandparents, and that doesn't fit our standard as a family right now. And so I have to gently find out how to say, I love you guys, but I have to ask you to do this differently. I have to ask you to not bring that up, or if this issue emerges that's left over from Elizabeth's foster care life, can you bring that to me or Andy and let us navigate it? And I think that's a good example in my life of how I have to still honor them. I'm not going to be mean and say, here's all the rules, figure it out. I want to be kind, but I also the parenting of my daughter and the running of my household is not something that my parents are going to be accountable for. It's something I'm accountable for. And so I have to be willing to engage and and set some of those standards. Mike, when we think about reorienting ourselves away from our family of origin and instead toward the teaching of Jesus, one of the principles that sticks out to me is seeking first the kingdom of God and accepting God's idea of the good life. Can you talk a little bit about, especially as you've navigated your work world the last couple of years, how has keeping the kingdom of God first and foremost helped you? And, and maybe this is a, a furthermore kind of question to develop, but if, can you imagine how you would have navigated those problems if all you had to rely on was your family of origin? The short answer is no. Okay. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> and I you can't, don't probably want to today. <laughs> no, I just can't imagine what it would be like. In fact, Karen and I were just talking about this last night in terms of it would really almost prove itself impossible to try to navigate some of the things that we experience in life, right? I mean, we've been talking about a lot of heavy stuff in the last six weeks or so on Sundays in the sermon series, but for me in my professional life, it would be nearly impossible to go it alone, I guess, if you will. Um, and I, and I just mean with the tools I was equipped with right. through the age of 16, right? only through trying to seek God's kingdom first and only through accepting that my value is in his love and in his family and in through his grace. That is really what has sustained me. I mean, I, I, some of you may know the the inner workings of of uh, the things that we've had to go through, but we had some toxic uh, toxic folks in our office space, and 
And in dealing with those people, if you try to find your value value through somebody who had a toxic relationship with you, uh, it's it's not going to be very fruitful. And so, um, really, every every day in the environment itself, but also certainly coming home and really just recentering on Christ, on being loved and being accepted uh, by Him first and foremost. Because if you only went off the tools that you were giving, or if you only went off of the fact that you had to achieve in order to be accepted, then you would be broken. It would be a miserable existence and it would be, you know, heartbreaking, I think. And, you know, Karen is really, really good at being empathetic in that way. And she saw, you know, at times that that there's near heartbreak and stuff. And so, yeah, I think without those, without that reorienting, reorienting around Jesus' teachings, um, it would be, you know, it would be nearly impossible. Yeah. Another big one for me is finding out that God loves me without me having done anything good for him and actually that he accepts me into his kingdom, not, and I have to be careful here, not that he loves everything that I'm doing before I meet Jesus, but that he's willing to deal with my garbage in order to get me in and then begin the work of changing me. And I've had that backwards. I think a lot of Christians try to get that backwards. Sometimes that's because we get this sort of cheap prepackaged version of the gospel. Sometimes it's because of our family of origin or it's just, we just pick it up in churches naturally. But for me, being kind of reparented into doing life Jesus way, if we struggle with that concept, here's what I would throw at our listeners. As we worked through the Silence and Solitude uh, series, could any of us eight weeks ago have said yes to the question, did your parents leave you as sort of a spiritual inheritance, a rich prayer life, or a tradition of silence and solitude with God? I think at best, some of us may have seen that from a distance. We knew our parents prayed in the morning or we saw them read their Bible. But how many of us could say honestly that we were invited in by our parents to try those things, to experience them for ourselves? And I think that's a great place where we can learn to do this differently. It's going to be a little bit awkward, but man, imagine not forcing your kids to do a prayer time every day, but letting your children know if they ever want in on that, that they're welcome and that you'll walk them through it and they don't have to know how to do it on their own. And there is no shame if they quote unquote get it wrong, even though that's also an idea that we probably want to reject and shed just a little bit. So Mike, as we get ready to land the plane here in the next five or six minutes, we have a fair amount of the chapter still left. I think what I'd like to do is touch on two big thoughts, two big rocks for us here. One is just the idea of the genogram that Pete prescribes, a way to kind of illuminate and find out what our emotional baggage is. And then I want to talk briefly about the life of Joseph as an example of learning where we come from and then moving out of uh, what we inherited into life with God in his kingdom. So any thoughts from you on the genogram? If not, I have a couple things I'd like to say. Yeah, no, I'll uh, jump in here and say that I think that this genogram is incredibly hard. Um, I think that in order to be able to do this accurately and honestly, it's going to take some work, um, you know, and, and again, it's kind of like I wrote down the word betray here on my notes because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, just maybe it's Western culture or whatever it is, whatever it is out of honor and respect and dignity of your family, it's hard to identify that somebody was self-absorbed or that somebody had fear of abandonment or that they were a workaholic. Um, and so I have yet to put pen to paper when it comes to this stuff. I have done it a little bit in my head, but I have yet to sit down and do the hard work that it would take to clearly label the trends, the patterns um, from the past generation to three generations. Um, But 
I think it's necessary if you, if you want, I mean, it's, it's as a scientist, I can appreciate the scientific approach here of laying these things out. And then of course it's biblical in the sense that God says to the third or fourth generation, you will inherit these, you know, these things, these sins, these, these blessings and things like that. Yeah. I can say that uh, I have done the genogram personally and I'm, I'm chewing on, you know, as we think through the spiritual practices, from a, a whole church standpoint, there's some that are obvious, meditation, silence and solitude, prayer, simplicity, sharing the gospel, corporate worship, those kinds of things are easy. But I think there's a whole host of things that could be spiritual disciplines for us that would be greatly beneficial, but maybe don't jump right out of the pages of church history. One of those is dealing with your past, excuse me, dealing with your past. And so I've been chewing on the idea of actually walking us through how to deal with our past and where we come from from scripture, following Jesus' example as a whole sermon series, as a spiritual practice series. And I, I think I'm going to do that. I think we're going to find out that that's a good idea. We're chewing on that together as, as elders right now. Do we do that or not? But the genogram would become part of what we would recommend to the whole church as sort of one of our weekly practices to take the time to do it. For me, it took about two hours. It took me about 30 minutes on the front end just to draw out what I could. Another 30 minutes on the phone with my parents to ask them questions about you know my family history. And it's been really, really helpful to me to learn myself. I'll give you an example. The only story that I know about my paternal great-grandfather is this story. He was uh, riding in a buggy in Texas in the late 1800s, had his kids in the cart with him, uh, and he's driving by this guy who's sitting on a porch of like a general store in town. And the guy's drunk, and uh, I'll just warn you, I'm going to say what the guy said here, but he yells out uh, to my great-grandfather, God damn you, John Coleman, was his name. And my great-grandfather did not appreciate that. He pulled the buggy around, the, didn't respond in the moment, pulled the buggy around the side of the building, went in the back door of the general store, walked by a big barrel full of axe handles, picked up an axe handle, walked outside, and just home run batted the guy in the head. I mean, hit him so hard. The story is that he rolled all the way down this, the steps into the street. And my great-grandfather said, do not ever speak to me or my family again. He went back into the store, put the axe handle back in the barrel, went and got the cart, and went on his way home. Uh, that's a little bit funny to think about, you know, as kind of a cartoon playing out there, but that's a real part of my family history. And it shows me that my great-great-grandfather, or excuse me, my great-grandfather was direct and blunt, calculating and tactical, which are all things that are true about me and have been effective in the workplace. But he was also aggressive, sometimes even willing to be violent. Now, I've never hit anybody with an axe handle, but I've been in some settings where I could feel that rising up inside me. If I wasn't able to control that and beat it down or walk away, that I was going to do that. What's interesting is he's quiet about it the whole time. He has this sort of white-hot rage. His son ended up being bipolar, and then his son, my dad, has many of those same tendencies. So now I know that part of being a Coleman, at least since the 1880s, has been that you win at any cost and that you hide the bodies under the floorboards. You do it in a way where people don't know what you did, um, but you do what you have to do to get ahead. And the question I'm left with then that the genogram hands me is what will I give to my daughter? Is that going to be what I'm willing to hand her? Or am I going to break that cycle? Am I going to find a way to become a person who doesn't have that white hot rage that wells up inside of them? Am I going to try to, with God's help, become the kind of person who can solve my problems without violence, without physical aggression, without needing to be angry in order to reach a solution. So Mike, any closing thoughts that you may have about the life of Joseph as we kind of hit the tail end of the chapter, or if you want to talk at all about, you know, some of the other quotes or the, the things that kind of came to the surface for you in this chapter, I think we're just about ready to wrap things up. 
Well, I just wanted to first say that I was with Philip last week in the field where I had a chainsaw and he had an axe and he did not show any violent tendencies. But had I known that story, I might have thought differently before going out on that adventure. Uh, <laughs> um, I think uh, in terms of, uh, of Joseph's story, uh, a couple of the points that I wanted to bring up was um, that... Um, he spent time doing honest grieving. I think that that was one of the points that, uh, that really jumped out at me. Um, when I talk about this stuff being hard, I think that as we do the genogram, genogram, that, um, that there will be some honest grieving and that's good and that's okay. And that's healthy. Um, Pete also talks about just before he's, uh, before this part of Joseph's life, he talks about that God never loses any of our past for his future when we surrender ourselves to him. And, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, it's incredibly important as we, uh, the whole chapter really emphasizes that we have to do the hard work, but it's not God giving, uh, having us give up on our past. It's God having us work through our past to identify who we are today and, and how we can be better, uh, in the future. Um, and the other part that, uh, in the, in the grieving was it feels like a black hole or an abyss that we, that might swallow us up. We wonder if we are only getting worse. And, uh, you know, I think especially after spending time with my folks recently, that's really what came to my mind was, geez, if I can only make it through three or four days feeling like this mature adult that I've hopefully grown into, but then all of a sudden I start to revert back. Am I only the same or am I only getting worse? And I don't, I don't think that that's what God has for us. I think that, um, you know, Joseph's life is a great example of how he diligently and, and faithfully looked at the big picture, right? He was constantly mindful that God was in charge, that he wasn't. And even when he sold into slavery and put into prison unjustly and all these things, that God was always there and always working. We, and Karen and I were just talking about this this morning, we probably don't, well, we don't, we just have human eyes. We can't see that from his perspective. We have 80 to 90 short years on this earth. And so we don't know exactly how it's going to all play out. And, you know, Philip's grandfather's a great story. And, and you know, what happened from that uh, generation to generation? And then what do, do you and Andy leave to Lizzie? What do I leave to my boys and all those things? So yeah, I think um, I think that that really uh, it's it's a lot of hard work, but it's necessary. It's good work, and God's not asking us to forget about where we've come from. He's asking us to work through it and with Him towards a better future. That's right, Mike. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up our discussion for today. I honestly think we could have gone probably another half an hour uh, beginning with this chapter. These chapters are dense. There's a lot of work to be done, a lot of self-exploration and prayer for me that comes out of reading through these kinds of things. I will say that if you're willing to take a step of homework, if you didn't necessarily make time to do the genogram as part of your reading time this last week, um, I recommend it, especially as we approach the holidays. I think you're going to get a really up-close view of who your family is. You may not even have to ask any questions. You may be able to get a grandparent or an aunt or uncle started on storytelling and just take a few notes in your phone as you go. Try to observe how people behave, what are some of the unspoken rules that exist in your family, because it's only by finding those things out that we'll gain the agency to break those chains and not pass those things on to our children. Next week's chapter is called Journey Through the Wall. I'll tell you as a preview, chapter four and also chapter six of this book have been the two most helpful and shaping chapters for me personally. 
So I hope you'll take the time to jump in and read through those chapters on your own and not just rely on the podcast to navigate those uh, this conversation for you. Mike, thanks again for spending time with us. Uh, Church, at this point, we're recording. It's Friday, November 18th. We're just about a day and a half behind. So hopefully this will be making its way into your podcast feed sooner than later, and you can be looking for our uh, discussion around chapter four of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, barring sickness or emergencies to drop uh, next Thursday on Thanksgiving Day at about lunchtime. So until then, you can always contact us at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. Questions, comments, or concerns, or ideas that you have for the podcast. Uh, we're still chewing on what we're going we're to call this podcast moving forward. We may integrate our sermons and all of our other resources into one feed. We'll be sure and let you know when we do that so that you know where to find us moving forward. Um, thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you very soon. <music>